We are in a, in a, we're going to continue our series on discipleship, and the way we've been talking about discipleship is through this paradigm of just how we change, right? How do people change? How do we become more Christ-like? For which we have this, this triangle of intentional spiritual formation graphic. That's triangle. There it is. Good. Thank you back there. Appreciate it. So week one, we talked about teaching or replacing false narratives with true narratives, then last week, we talked about practices, replacing unintentional habits with intentional spiritual disciplines and practices. This week, we're going to talk about community or replacing kind of shallow social media style relationships with community. Next week, we're going to get into the Holy Spirit. And, and growth and transformation is an important thing to talk about because there are many Christians I believe, who've been sitting in churches kind of clutching their born-again certificates for a long time, but they haven't seen much growth. And that's serious business. Because we see a lot of scriptures like Second Peter 5, which says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. Now listen to this. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means we should be growing, right? We should be growing these qualities. As disciples of Jesus, we should be seeing things happen in our life. Our faith isn't static, right? It should always be moving us more into Christ-likeness. So we're going to talk about community today, and I hope you'll hear everything we talk about today through the kind of the lenses of Jesus in John chapter 13. Uh, so the context is, Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet, which was a very self-sacrificial, humble move, and then he says to them, he says, starting in verse 34, and we're going to, we're going to put that up there, all right, a new command I give you, and what's this command? Let's all say it together, love one another. As I have loved you, you must, what? Say it out loud. Love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Three times he says love one another. Notice he says, they will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. When it comes to discipleship, yes, we want to grow and change. Yes, we want to get good teaching. We want to replace false narratives with true narratives. Uh, we want to replace unintentional habits with intentional spiritual practices. Yes. But the ultimate proof of discipleship, Jesus says, is love for one another. And he could have made a lot of different things the proof of discipleship, right? He could have said, they will know you're my disciples if you have perfect theology. Good theology is important, but he didn't say that. He didn't say that they will know you're my disciples if you're always in church. It's a great thing to be in church, but that's not how Jesus defines if you're a disciple. He didn't say, they will know you're my disciples if you have a Christian bumper sticker on your car. Which, quite honestly, some of you probably should not have. <laughs> I've seen you drive, alright? I would question if you're a disciple by the way you drive your car. I hope that's convicting to you. Jesus says, they're going to know that we are disciples by how we love one another. 
And so we're going to talk today about community. And the reason this is so important now is that we're more connected than ever, right? But, this, but at the same time, statistics show people feel more isolated than ever. Um, so much so that Mother Teresa said that loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. Um, a few years ago, loneliness had reached up such an epidemic proportion in the United Kingdom that uh, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, literally appointed a minister for loneliness to the cabinet of the United Kingdom. Um, in Japan, lonely deaths among the elderly are frequent enough that there's actually a word for it now. Kudakushi came to attention about a decade ago when an elderly man died, and his body was not discovered until he'd been dead for three years. Uh, his apartment rent was just being deducted from his bank account. It was not until the bank account ran out of money that someone found his body. That sort of thing is common enough now that it has a name in Japan. Uh, in our own country, the former U.S. Surgeon General wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review titled Work and the Loneliness Epidemic. He wrote that the most common pathology he saw as a doctor was not heart disease or diabetes or cancer. It was loneliness, just people alone. He says, loneliness has more than doubled since the 1980s, and well over 40% of Americans report suffering from loneliness at significant levels. And experts expect the actual total is considerably higher because people are just reluctant to say, I feel lonely. He goes on to say, it's worse for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it crushes the soul. Um, so, what's going to fix this loneliness epidemic? Um, there's a book called the, the All Better Book, where children are asked to solve really big problems. Uh, little kids come up with the solutions. And so one of the questions they asked these kids was, with billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. So what do you suggest? So little kids came up with their answers. This is Kalani, age eight. She said people should find lonely people, ask their name and address, and then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. When you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in a newspaper. That's a little kid with the gift of administration right there. <laughs> uh, this is Matt, age eight. We could get people a pet or a husband or a wife and take them places. <laughs> I love that. Just grab people, husband or wife. What? Or a pet. I don't know. Just as good. Makes you wonder what little Matt thinks about marriage. Max, age nine, says, make food that talks to you when you eat. For instance, it would say, how are you doing? Or what happened to you today? I'm not sure I could eat food if it were talking to me. Like, is it going to scream when I bite it? I don't know. Another question he asked, it doesn't have to do with loneliness, but it's just too good not to mention. A couple was, uh, they said, too many people spend hours at a job where they're unhappy. Give their boss some suggestions. Andrew, age nine, says, pay double and have a big tickling machine for unhappy workers. <laughs> Then my favorite was this one. <laughs> Telling people that smoking is bad for them doesn't work. So what would you do to help them quit? Alexis, age eight, said, go to a smoker's house, pretend to smoke and die. <laughs> That's a dramatic little kid. I love it. But, uh, uh, funny. But with billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one's lonely. And somebody did. It's called the church. Dallas Willard used to say, God's aim in human history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons 
with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. So many people, when they hear the word church, kind of think of a place you go or a service you attend. Uh, but Jesus had much, much more than that in mind. He had not a biological family, but a spiritual family, a literal family in mind. Um, one time he was told his mom and brothers were looking for him, and this was his response, Matthew 12. Jesus asked, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers, which would just have been staggering in, an ancient, in the ancient world, which is a very tribal society. He says, anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my mother, is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus came to start a family, God's family. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. You might be or have been quite disappointed in your biological family experience. Understand that was never intended to be your ultimate family. God wants everybody to be a part of his family. That's what we are and that's what we're called to be. And the New Testament writers have a phrase that they just loved. In fact, it occurs 59 times in the New Testament. It's the phrase, one another. There are all kinds of these statements. Uh, Be at peace with one another. Honor one another. Wash one another's feet. Jesus said, submit to one another. They were serious about this in the New Testament. Admonish one another. Speak truth to one another. Be devoted to one another. And so what I want to do today is just walk through five of the one another's in the Bible that happen in community. And, and kind of while we walk through these texts or these commandments in the Bible, just think, God, like, how are you calling me to one another at a deeper level with my brothers and sisters in my life? So first one, Galatians 6.2 says, carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So what is it to carry one another's burdens? So if you see somebody like struggling along with like a hundred pound weight on their back, How do you bear that burden with them? The answer is you have to be present. You have to be engaged with them. You have to be right alongside them. You have to get very close. You have to let some of that burden shift onto you. Some of the weight is moving onto you. Some of their suffering is moving onto you. What's that mean? You know when you've got a friend who's going through like a tough time, an emotional, he's kind of, they're kind of an emotional mess, just having a rough go at it. Our, our first thought is often, I don't really want to spend my time listening to all that, isn't it? True? We can be honest. Why? It's draining. But if you do, they feel like they're not carrying their burden alone. Right? They're being drained. You're being drained. They're being strengthened. You're bearing their burden. Some of the weight is moving on to you. Some of their suffering is moving on to you. What if it's a financial burden? What if somebody in your community has a financial problem? Helping them bear that burden might look like opening up your wallet. That is helping to carry some of their burden. What has changed in our world is not the burden of bad health or the burden of parenting or the burden of addiction or the burden of failure or the burden of loss. Those things have always existed. What has changed is that there aren't the people to help carry those things. And I I need to say this, carrying one another's burdens doesn't mean that you have to be like crushed by taking responsibility for a bunch of other people. In fact, Paul goes right on in the same passage just a couple of sentences later. It says in Galatians 6.5, each one should carry their own load. So he says bear each other's burdens, but each should carry their own load. 
And you might think Paul is kind of contradicting himself there, but he's not. A number of writers talk about this. Paul's actually using two different words. Load in verse 5, he should carry his own load, is kind of like in our day, like a backpack. It would be something that you're able to do. It's doable. You can do this on your own. Everybody ought to carry their own backpack, the normal sort of weight and responsibilities of life. The word for burden in verse 2 is different. It's a much heavier term in Greek, more like a boulder. can't carry a boulder by yourself. We carry them together. And we'll all have burdens occasionally. They may kind of come and go in your life and in your community's life. So you carry your backpack, your general life stuff, and then when the burdens come along, you pitch in with those you're in community with to help carry that burden. And this is why small groups of communities that do life together, hopefully for a long period of time, is really important. Why? Because to help carry a burden, i got to know what your burden is. If you're going to help me carry my burden, you got to know what my burden is. You're never going to figure out anybody's burden if you aren't in community with them. Burden carrying doesn't happen in rows when you're all looking in one direction. It happens in smaller circles where you can know each other. And most of you probably know our youngest daughter had major back surgery a couple months ago, and it was a burden, right? It was a heavy thing to carry. But what we experienced in the face of that was so many of you helping us bear that burden. Gift cards, financial gifts, meals, help, praying for us. And I can tell you from experience, it's really, really amazing to have people you love and trust to help you bear a burden. Look how he finishes this. This is so important. It says, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So the law of Christ is this. Love other people the way that God, through Christ, has loved you. That's the law. That's the law of Christ. Live in love. Love is our law. When in doubt, when you wonder what the Bible means, when you wonder what the Bible says, when you wonder what you're supposed to do, if you're a Christian, it all comes down to that. I am to love others the way that God, through Jesus, has loved me. I am to ascribe unsurpassable worth to everyone I meet. And it says, you'll carry each other's burdens, and when you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ. Second one. Second one another, Romans 15, 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another. God has planted the need for acceptance deep in every soul. The desire to be Welcomed into the family just because you are you. To be known and wanted and celebrated. There's a great scholar of human development by the name of Dr. Yuri Bronfenbrenner. He's the guy who helped start the Head Start program. And he defined a family as a group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of others. A family is a group that possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of one another. And the key word there is irrational, right? Part of God's plan is that the church be a place of irrational commitment to one another. And a lot of people never get accepted like this. And sometimes they might even hang around a church, but, if, but, but what happens is they kind of come to a, to a service, and they might sit through it, and they might leave, but they never get into a little circle of people where they can be known and accepted for who they are. Third practice that can only happen in relationship. Jesus' brother James writes about it. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So this is such a powerful practice. The integration of confession and then prayer and then healing go together. 
It's so amazing that when Jesus was with somebody, he would very often put a finger precisely on the part of the life they wanted to hide. You notice that? With Zacchaeus, he knew all about that little guy up in a tree and his tax collector greed. With the Samaritan woman at the well, he knew all about the history that would have been so shameful to her and the five different marriages and shacking up with the guy she wasn't married to. With Doubting Thomas, Jesus knew exactly about his doubt. With the woman caught in adultery, where she was about to be shamed, as our culture so often do, particularly to women, Jesus knew all about that and loved her and pronounced forgiveness and healing over her. With Peter, at the greatest failure of his life and the deepest betrayal when, Jesus, when he denied Jesus, Jesus talked to him directly about that. When Jesus named people's deepest, darkest secrets, their biggest guilt and shame, it didn't end their relationship with them. It was just the opposite. His knowing their darkest secrets and still loving them is what healed them. It's what made them go absolutely crazy about Jesus. We all try to hide, right? Because we all want to be loved. But it's so self-defeating. Because, of course, as long as I'm successful at hiding a part of myself, I can never experience love from you. Because inside I'm thinking, if you really knew me, you would never love me. And so we all feel this pressure to become pretenders, imaginary people. And here's what's true for all of us. Until we embrace and get honest about who and where we really are, we can't get to where we need to be, which is growing in Christ-likeness. We all, including me, we all need relationships where we can drop the pretense. We all need relationships where we can just kind of drop all the manufactured cool and courageous and confident Got it all together. Everything's organized all the time. We need a place where we can drop all that without fear of being judged, without fear of being rejected. Because to be fully known and loved is incredibly powerful. And here's the irony. Jesus came to save sinners. The lost, wicked, messed up, dysfunctional, needy, greedy people like you and me. But there's something about churches. When people gather on the weekend that we kind of become a church of immaculate pretenders, right? People wake up fighting, running late, screaming all the way in the minivan. When you get to the church, man, we're doing great. (laughs) Job's great, family's great, marriage's great, kids are great, dog's great. That will kill a church and will kill a soul. This one another, confess your sins to one another, can only fully happen with with trusted brothers and sisters in a little circle of people. Fourth one. Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. If there's a single dynamic that makes a church great, and I mean great, Jesus taught about this often, it's not the building, isn't how how many people attend, it's not the budget, it's not the preaching, it's not the music, it's not the programs. It is when the church is just a family of humble servants. With a mindset of, like, how can I help? How can I volunteer? How can I, can I pray for you? Can I do something for you? Can I shepherd a little flock of people and just build into them spiritually? Are there some students I could come alongside? Are there some children I could build into spiritually? Then you get to experience God using you in a way that the Spirit of God has gifted you for. Your faith gets built up. That's what makes church a family. Fifth one. Fifth one another. Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
So go ahead. Um, <laughs> find someone you don't know. Give him a big old holy kiss. No, 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 no. Stop. Guys, no. What Paul here is saying is not go around smooching everybody. In the time Paul was writing this, a kiss was a way that you would greet family. Okay, so the kind of kiss he's talking about is a familial, familial expression of endearment. And Paul says, in a holy way, express your love for one another. He's saying develop affection for your spiritual family that actually gets expressed in whatever cultural ways are appropriate. A handshake, a hug, head nod. Christians should feel genuine affection for one another. Paul's writing to a persecuted, beleaguered church trying to encourage them how to live as exiles in this vast sea of unbelievers who are being very hostile to them. And he's laboring to help them not to just show like dutiful love to each other but rather to feel like earnest, heartfelt affection for one another. That's why he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. In 1 Peter 1.22, it says, You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. Those words are beyond treat each other nice. Way beyond that. He's calling for Christians to really have affection for each other. This is 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you should be, at, be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted. Keep a humble attitude. I mean, these three of those things, like sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, imply how warm and tender and gentle and kind and affectionate we should be toward brothers and sisters in Christ. So there are, those are five examples of one another's. Uh, there's, there's many more in the Bible. A great practice would be, as you're reading your Bible, keep an eye out for the one another's. Um, highlight them, because they are very important. Um, and I also need to put this out there. Community is messy. Okay? Just know that going in. Mess is baked into community. Um, but even in that, Jesus gave us an example. I think Jesus made his close community very messy on purpose. In fact, I would have loved to have been there at Jesus' kind of first small group meeting with these folks he picked. He's, he handpicks these 12 disciples. He gathers them together. And like any small group, you, can, you join. You first you kind of thing you'll do is kind of probably go around the room, introduce yourself, tell us a little about yourself, so you can get to know the people in the circle. And I imagine Jesus did that with his disciples too. I think he probably started with Simon. Simon the Zealot. He said, Simon, why don't you tell us what it is that you do? And so Simon, he looks at the rest of the group and he says, Hey everybody, I'm Simon the Zealot. Being a zealot means I'm ready to rise up and destroy Rome for the benefit of the Jewish nation. Like, we've got to use guerrilla warfare to fight anyone who would go against us. Because if we don't burn them down, they're going to burn us down. And they were all like, well, welcome to the group, Simon. <laughs> Let's go to Matthew. Matthew, what is it you do? Uh, I work for the Roman government. 
I'm a tax collector. And I take money from people like Simon for the benefit of the government. That's what I do. So you got a zealot on one side, you got a Roman government worker on the other side. Think that may get a little messy? By the way, it's not just like political differences, there's personality differences. If you ever read the New Testament, you got this guy named Peter, a loudmouth, next to a guy referred to as Doubting Thomas, an introverted, skeptical cynic, probably blogs a lot. My kind of guy. Also, you got these sons of thunder, these fiery guys who are sold, sold out everything to follow Jesus, next to Judas Iscariot, a traitor of all. This is the community Jesus is gathering around himself. Do you think they always got along? Look at Matthew chapter 20. I love this. This shows some of the mess of the Jesus' disciples' community. Matthew chapter 20. Here we see a mother got involved with Jesus and his disciples. So verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons, either one, of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant, which means really mad. And you and I would be too. Two of the twelve go to Jesus with their mom. (laughs) The sons of thunder bring their mommy into the equation. And they ask for a higher place, and it makes everybody mad. But Jesus keeps gathering them closer and closer to himself. In fact, what Jesus does is he goes straight into a teaching on what it means to be a disciple. He reorients their thinking. Verse 25, he says this. It says this. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Love that. Instead, whoever wants to be great must become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So does community sometimes get messy? Heck yes, it does. But you cannot separate discipleship to Jesus from involvement in community, no matter how messy it is. Proverbs 14.4 says, An empty stable stays clean, but there's no income from an empty stable. I love that verse. An empty stable stays clean, but there's no income from an empty stable. I love it because it's saying, you can control your life. Keep it clean and tidy by distancing yourself from people. Keep it all neat and orderly. But you won't have the reward. The risk and mess is worth the reward when you open up your heart and your life and your house. Ronald Rollheiser said this. He said, part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that this will bring us. Spirituality for a Christian can never be an individualistic quest, the pursuit of God outside of community, family, and church. The God of, of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says that he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with a visible neighbor on earth as a liar, since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. 
Reality is, it's always as much about dealing with others as it is dealing with God. When the Bible speaks of our spiritual formation, or progressive sanctification, or growth into Him, it never speaks of spiritual formation as an individual process. There is nowhere in Scripture where, when it comes to discipleship and growth into the fullness of Christ, we're spoken to as individuals removed from the communal aspect of our faith. It's just not there. All right, that's enough. Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, empower us to carry one another's burdens. To, to accept one another, one another just as Christ accepted us. To confess our sins to each other. In humility, may we serve one another humbly in love. Lord, may we have genuine affection. May we greet one another with genuine affection. And Lord, help us to be a community that reflects love and the grace of Jesus. So Lord, we just pray for strength to navigate the messiness of community. Lord, we commit our community into your hands. Bless us, guide us. May our lives and our church be a testament to the law of Christ, which is love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.